there's uh, there's some things that uh, I'm really not uh, surprised at the questions that we got because there were some things that were uh, um, kind of rolling around in my heart in in, uh, in answering and dealing with these questions. I'm going to ask you a few that um, that I think are, are kind of central to some of the other questions that uh, that were asked. The first question is, what are the principles to activate faith? And then the secondary question is, how do you keep your faith when going through a very difficult trial? Turn with me to Mark chapter 11. The principles to activate faith, are, there are only two ways that you can turn your faith loose. One is by word, and another is by action. Mark chapter 11, Jesus, after having cursed the fig tree and the disciples inquiring of him how this thing happened, or at least the, the question is implied in, uh, in bringing to remembrance the fact that he cursed it the day before, Jesus answering verse 22 said, have the faith or have faith in God. Another translation says, have the faith of God. We sometimes summarize that by saying the faith of God would be the God kind of faith. What other kind of faith would God have except the God kind? So if it's the faith of God, it would have to be the God kind of faith. Verse 23, Jesus describes how that works. He said, for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say. Notice the first thing that he makes mention of. Uh, regarding the operation of faith is the words that you speak. For whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Verse 24, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive, if you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. The, um, uh, the, um, there's only one other place in the, in the Scripture that we have record of somebody operating in faith without words. That's over in Acts chapter 14 where the crippled man, Paul and uh, his company are at, uh, at Lystra. And uh, there was a, a crippled man there and he's been crippled since birth. And uh, it says the same heard Paul speak. Uh, this is Acts chapter 14, verse 7. The same heard, or verse 7 says, and there they preached the gospel. Verse 8, eight says, and there sat a impotent man crippling his feet from his mother's womb who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed. Paul saw something about him, saw his faith, at least uh, the, the evidence in his appearance that he had faith. Because Paul's preaching, nobody's talking except Paul. But Paul, perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, here's a man in Acts chapter 14 that, uh, that activated his faith without words, but through actions. So if we put these two, two, two things together, then the principle, the only principles to operate or activate your faith is either by word and or deed. Sometimes we speak without uh, having anything to act on, and that still qualifies his faith. And sometimes we can act without speaking, as in the case of Acts chapter 14. Most of the time, it's a combination of the two. Most of the time, there's something we can do, even when we're making our confession or speaking our faith, to, um, uh, to identify that it is really coming from our heart. Now, one thing you can always do, and here's the reason why I say that, one thing you can always do, no matter what you're believing for, no matter what the circumstance is, one thing that you can always do is you can praise God for the answer. That's action. Now, if you really believe that what you're saying... If what you are believing for in your heart is truly yours according to the word of God, then you are going to get happy about it, aren't you? Praising God. Somebody said, uh, and, and in fact, another question was, what's the highest faith that you can achieve? 
One person said, and I don't know who to credit to, but one person said, uh, praise is the highest type of faith. I think it's Wigglesworth who said that. But anyway, somebody said it. And whoever it was was right. Praise is the highest type of faith. Because, see, if you really believe something is yours according to the word, not according to your five physical senses, but according to the word, then you're going to praise God for the answer. And we see that uh, exhibited in uh, Romans chapter 4 when it tells us about Abraham. It says Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. The evidence of Abraham's strength of faith, his strong faith, was the fact that he was praising God for the answer before he ever had a child. He didn't wait to have the child and then thank him for it. I'm sure he was glad then too. Aren't we all glad when the, when the realization of what we've been believing for comes and materializes? But that's not when he started, that's not when he waited to start praising God for it. He was praising God. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God. I think that's verse 20, Romans chapter 4, verse 20. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Then it goes on to say, in being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Two characteristics of strong faith are identified in Romans chapter 4 in Abraham's experience or Abraham's example. Number one, he praised God for the answer before he had the answer. In other words, before he had the answer in physical form. It was so real. The answer was so real. The Bible says he believed according to that which was spoken. And his faith in what God said about being the father of many nations was strong enough to where he thanked God for the answer even though he didn't see any children. Even though he didn't see any children. So the highest type of faith or a principle to activate your faith to prove that you're really in faith, in other words, is to praise God for the answer before you have it. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I just don't feel like praising God because I'm under the rock here. I'm under such a burden in this, this circumstance. That goes to another question. Uh, maybe I read this one all, already. How do you keep your faith when going through a very difficult trial? It's the same thing. The way you keep your faith, remember in, uh, well, we just read it in Mark chapter 11, verse 23. Jesus said the God kind of faith works like this. Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart. It's the only qualification, the only restriction he places on faith. And shall not doubt in his heart. Now he goes further in verse 25 and 26 to tell us that unforgiveness will hinder faith. But whereas the operation of faith is concerned, assuming that you're not walking in unforgiveness to somebody, assuming that everything is a clear channel, so to speak, regarding your faith, you're walking in love, then the only restriction he places on faith is not doubt in your heart. Not doubt in your heart could be summarized, and we could spend a week talking about this and teaching on this from the Scripture. But not doubting in your heart is very simply believing according to what God said instead of what you see or feel. Doubt in the heart. The Bible talks about the heart in First Peter chapter 3 and verse 4. It said, let it be the hidden man of the heart. The heart that's spoken of here in Mark chapter 11 is talking about the hidden man. Your heart is a man. It's the man on the inside, the eternal part of man. And he's hidden. Well, what's he hidden from? He's hidden from the physical realm. He's hidden from your five physical senses. Your five physical senses is the only way you can make contact with the physical realm. So if he's a hidden man and he's hidden from the physical realm, then he has to be hidden from your five physical senses. That's why the devil will try to work on your five physical senses, what you see and what you feel, to try to get you to doubt in your heart. In other words, try to get you to speak contrary to the words of faith that you've already expressed. How do you keep your faith when you're in the middle of a hard place? The best answer I've got for you is to praise God for the answer. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, that's the last thing I feel like doing. I know, that's why you need to do it. 
Because praising God for the answer, the Bible calls it the sacrifice of praise. Let us offer the sacrifice of praise. Folks, it's not a sacrifice when you feel like praising God. Now, I assume that you had the same experience that I did when we were worshiping God before the service began. Boy, wasn't that a sweet presence of the Lord? We get to worshiping God, we all felt it. It's easy to worship God like that. It's easy to worship God when somebody's leading us in song and there's pretty music playing and stuff like that. Wouldn't it be great if there was a soundtrack that followed us around through life? Make it a lot easier on us, wouldn't it? Well, the fact is you have to provide your own soundtrack. Your praises for that which you believe for but yet do not yet see is the soundtrack of faith. And that's the way you stay in faith. That's the way you maintain your faith through the hard places. That uh, we sang that song that Wigglesworth made the, uh, the, the cornerstone of his ministry. Every service, he would lead the song, only believe, only believe. Folks, you start singing songs like that, Lord, I believe, Lord, I believe. All things are possible, Lord, I believe. That's your faith in action. That's faith working. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, it doesn't feel like it's working. That's right. Faith is not felt because it's from the hidden man of the heart. Faith is going to be hidden to your five physical senses just like your spirit is hidden from your five physical senses because faith is of the heart. It's of that hidden man of the heart. So the time Wigglesworth said this, he said, the time that I feel the strongest in faith is when I'm the weakest. Why is that? Because I'm going by what I feel. But the times that I'm the strongest in faith is when I feel the weakest and feel like nothing is working. That's when I'm the strongest in faith because all I have to rely on is the truth of, truth of God's word. Folks, the best evidence that your faith is working is the feelings that you have that it's not. That's when the rubber meets the road. That's when faith works. That's when faith counts. That's when the sacrifice of praise brings the answer in. Yeah, but we can't see it, Pastor Mike. How do we know it's really taking place? Well, it's already yours. According to the word, it's already yours in the unseen realm. Our praises, our thanking God is the same thing Abraham did. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God. It brings the answer closer and closer and closer from the, in the immaterial or the invisible the invisible realm to the material realm it's like moving chess pieces you move the chess pieces by praising God for the answer now let me ask you a question I said that I was going to do this let me ask you this and I'm not really looking for anybody to shout out an answer but I want to get you to thinking about something why faith we talk about what faith is we talk about how faith comes we talk about how to turn your faith loose why faith Nobody deals with the question of why. Why faith? Well, somebody might say, well, Pastor Mike, because God wants his children to be able to receive. Well, that's true. No question about that. But God could have set it up any number of ways. He didn't have to use faith to, make the, to be the avenue or the means of receiving from him. He could have set it up so that we receive the blessings of God by rubbing our nose. Of course, I'm sure he's smart enough to figure out that we wouldn't look too good with all the skin rubbed off our nose. So he didn't choose that. But why faith? It can't be just because God wants man to receive. It's got to be something more than that because he could have made any number of ways for man to receive. Well, then what is it? Why faith? Folks, the, the more I study faith and the longer I walk with God, the simpler the things of God seem to become. 
And it comes down to very simply this. God wants one and only one thing, even more than he wants you to receive the blessings that he's provided for you. He wants one thing more than anything else, and that is he wants you to know how impossible it is for him to break his word. Because when you and I come to the place, it's the same thing that it says about Abraham. Different terminology, but the same thing I'm saying, the same thing Romans 4.21 says. Abraham was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. How do you become fully persuaded? There's only one way. That is by standing in faith. By standing on what the word says in times of trouble. Standing in faith is where you find out that God is true to his word. It's where you find out, and it's the only way you can find out. It's the only way that you can find out for sure, for yourself, experience for yourself, that God wants to make his word come to pass on your behalf. That's by standing in faith. If there weren't trouble in the world, you wouldn't know how good God is. If there wasn't resistance to our faith, then there'd be no strength of faith. If faith was just a matter of, a, uh, of prayer, faith was just a matter of saying, okay, God, I need this, give me this, and all of a sudden the slot machine in heaven cranked up and poured out whatever blessing you need, then you'd never find out the real value of God's word. You'd never find out the character and the nature of God. You might see God as a benevolent um, a benefactor. You might find that God was somebody that would give you whatever you asked for. But we don't do that with our children, do we? I don't give my kids everything they want. I teach them what's good to want. But I do give them everything that's good for them. Now, God's already set out the parameters. He sets the boundaries, just like we do as parents. The boundaries are within his word. He said, I'll give you anything that's in my word. That doesn't mean God will give you anything. What if you ask for something that's outside of his word? There's no basis for faith. There's no way to receive it. Brother Hagin tells the story of some guy came up to him after a service one time. A meeting he was holding and said, I want you to agree with me. Brother Hagin said, well, what do you want me to agree on? He said, I want you to agree with me that God will give me that other guy's wife. Well, that's stupid. We can see it in an extreme example like that. That violates every principle that God's word outlines concerning marriage. So God wouldn't do that. He can't do that. He can't break his word. And folks, that's the why of faith. So that you and I come to realize how impossible it is for God to break his word. The one thing God wants you to know more than anything else is he wants you to know he's true to his word. Why? Because that puts you in a place where you desire to know more of his word. And that's the only way you can know God is through his word. You can't know God through your feelings. You can't know God through your thoughts. You can only know God through his word. Now, now his word can change your feelings. His word can change your thoughts to come in line with what he says about himself. But the only way you're ever going to know God is through his word. That's why I kind of have a problem with people calling certain ones, and, and they've certainly identified me in this category as faith preachers i don't like the term faith preacher i don't like the term word of faith preacher i don't like the the term faith church or word of faith church i don't like the term grace church i don't like any of those terms because it comes down to the word of god paul said faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word if the word's being preached faith is going to be the byproduct you can't help it now that doesn't mean you have to act on it but if the word of god is being preached faith is a byproduct automatically automatically so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god amen okay i may have skipped ahead a little bit let me get back on track 
It seems the more faith that I apply, the greater challenges become. Duh. Why is it so important to the devil that he break our faith? Well, that's the only thing the devil cares about. Because if he can't destroy your faith, if he can't get you to to operate according to your feelings, what influence does he have on you? Folks, you need to realize the devil has one and only one tool, and that is deception. Well, deception from what? What is he trying to deceive us about? He's trying to deceive us about the truth of God's word. What's the first thing he asked Eve in the Garden of Eden? Has God said? The attack was against the word. The reason that that the devil attacks our faith is because the basis of faith is the word of God. The attack's not against you. The devil couldn't care less about you. You have nothing to do with his future. Nothing whatsoever. What does he care about? He cares about God. God is his enemy. And so he's attacking the word. That's why faith becomes the means where he tries to, to, or I'm sorry, that's why deception becomes the means whereby he tries to get us to, to, uh, uh, to countermand our faith. He tries to get us to doubt in the heart or speak according to our feelings, our five physical senses, so he can steal the word. The attack is against the word. It's not personal. Don't take it personal. I mean, don't get me wrong, the devil hates you. But the reason he hates you is because God loves you. It's not you. So many times people have the idea, well, the devil's after me. The devil couldn't care less about you. The devil's after the word. Remember Jesus said in Mark chapter 4 when he was talking about the sower sowing the word. First thing the devil does uh, with the people that are considered the wayside, the devil comes immediately to take away the word that was sown in their hearts. The attack's against the word. It's not against you. So many times people think, well, I'm, I'm under such an attack. I'm going through so many problems. I must really be something. The devil even gets you in spiritual pride about that. Nobody's being attacked like me. Really? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about any of us. It's about the word. Because the important thing, see, the devil knows the why of faith. The devil understands a lot more than most Christians do. He knows the why of faith. He understands that it's about the word. He knows that that the only thing that he can really do to do damage to God, I'm talking about from God's heart standpoint, is to to cause his children, cause the children of God to distrust their father. That's what it's about. Not about you. Why isn't he more interested in unbelievers? What does he care about unbelievers for? He's got them. What's he going to do? Try to make it tough for them? There's destruction to sin. That's coming already. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's physical. That's spiritual. That's all kinds of ways. Destruction is the, is the end result of operating contrary to the word. He doesn't need to show himself to non-believers. He doesn't have any word to steal. Remember, it's not personal. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not even about unbelievers. It's about trying to steal the word of God away. Well, what word of God does a non-believer have? He's not their concern. They're not children of God. To attack them would be fruitless from his point of view. He doesn't do God any damage by attacking non-believers. Here's a good one. Do you have to be a good steward of finances to obtain prosperity? Do you have to eat healthy and exercise to receive healing? What is our part... Or is it just, do we have a part, or do, is it just faith in speaking the word? Well, I think it's a combination. I mean, the Bible does tell, tell, uh, tell each of us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. I think the way that we treat our bodies has a lot to do with the, uh, the end result of our faith. 
I don't, I've never seen anybody that was able to, to uh, abuse their body and really have faith in God for healing or, or even finances or whatever. It comes down to being a good steward in every area of life. If you knew you had to give an account by the end of, end of the week in the way that you're treating your body or the way you're treating your finances, wouldn't you start working hard today and tomorrow? I think all of us would. Because we recognize it's just like the, the story that Jesus told about the unjust steward who had to give an account. He started making up the accounts. He started trying to make things work on his favor. Well, if we realize that there is an accounting, not a, a judgment from God, but there is an accounting for the way that we treat ourselves, the way we treat our bodies I'm talking about. There is an accounting for the way we operate financially. There is an accounting. See, the consequences of death, the consequences of sin, the wages of sin is death. That applies whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. And if we believe God to provide for us, if we believe in healing, if we know what the word of God says about prosperity, if we know what the word of God says about the blessings of God available to us, but then we work contrary to what wisdom, the wisdom of God says we should do. And there's a lot of information in the word about finances. If we're operating contrary to God's laws of finances and wisdom, the dictates of wisdom as given to us throughout Scripture, how is God going to bless us? How's that going to work? How are you going to have confidence? The Bible says that if our heart condemns us not, then we have confidence. If you and I are not operating with wisdom financially, then our heart is going to try to get that across to us. Our heart's going to tell us something's not right here. We may not know what it is, and we may have to search things out to figure out what it is. But our heart's going to t- condemn us. Well, how are you going to stand in faith if your heart's condemning you because you're not handling things well with what you have already? See, I think a lot of times people have the lottery mentality. Well, we can just be wasteful and we can just do whatever we want to with finances and just believe God for a pile of money at the end of the week. If if any of you are able to make that work, tell me how. That doesn't work. Because very, very, uh, very rarely, seldom, does God rain money down in some way. And certainly the money doesn't come from heaven. The money that we need is here on the earth. If God did give it to us from heaven, it would be counterfeit. And he's not a counterfeiter. So what we need is here on the earth. So for the most part, it's operating according to godly instruction that multiplies what we have. That's God's plan. That's God's method. Well, the same thing's true where where healing is concerned. If I'm uh, consistently abusing my body or doing something to mistreat my body, how am I going to have faith to believe God for healing for it? Doesn't work. My heart's going to condemn me. My heart is going to know all the time that I'm operating contrary to what the Bible says about treating the temple of the Holy Ghost in a proper manner. So how am I going to have faith for that? If you can make that work, tell me how that works too. Now, we've seen people, and there have been a number of cases. You may know situations like this yourself. Where somebody has abused themselves, somebody has, has not taken care of their bodies, and they've repented and they've turned to God for the answer, and God's healed them. But God expects them to do right from that point forward. And if they don't, the same or maybe even a worse thing could come back on them. You remember Jesus said that to the woman. He said, go and sin no more. He said that to two people. He said that to the woman taken in adultery, and he said that to the man that was healed at the pool of Bethesda. He said, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. God blessed them. God's Goodness was upon them, but he expected something out of them. God expects something out of you and me too. So I think we do have a part in this. I think that our part is not only to believe God, to operate according to the, uh, to, uh, to believe according to the word, but also to operate according to what godly wisdom dictates. 
That way our heart has confidence to receive anything and everything that God has for us. Oh, here's a question. How does faith work in the interpretation of tongues? Easy. It works in the interpretation of tongues just in the same way that it works in speaking in tongues. Does anybody here, I'm talking about those, and I assume this is uh, the vast majority of the crowd, those of us that are filled with the Spirit and speak with other tongues, does anybody know what they're going to say before they start speaking? No? Well, then how does faith work? You open your mouth and you expect God to put words there to speak. So you start speaking before you know what you're going to say. In the same way, interpretation of tongues can be similar. That doesn't always have to work the same way. There are some times where you might know the first little part of it or then you might have the first phrase or something like that to know what uh, the interpretation of tongues would be. But in most cases, not only with interpretation of tongues, but with all of the manifestations, the nine manifestations of the Spirit, very seldom do you know the, the end of the thing when you start. Most of the time you start off with just a prompting of the Holy Ghost and from there the Lord shows you step by step by step what to do. As far as the interpretation of tongues is concerned, he gives you word by word by word or maybe phrase by phrase. Very seldom does it come out as a whole. Now there have been a couple of times in my experience and uh, in working with Brother Hagin that, uh, that I knew the gist of what was being said and I interpreted the gist or kind of like a, I had a summary in my spirit, but not a word for word type thing. There was a, there was a situation where we were, uh, I was working with Brother Hagin at John Osteen's church. And Brother Hagin started um, uh, speaking in tongues and uh, he looked to, to Brother Osteen to interpret. Well, Brother Osteen didn't move. He didn't say anything. He didn't, he didn't step up. And so I, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, well, what, uh, what needs to happen here, Lord? What's, uh, Brother Hagin's looking to him and is there anything I need to do? I'm trying to stand out of the way. I'm sure not expecting him to look to me. And he didn't. I wasn't in a position where I was, uh, um, well, I wasn't in a position to be used at that point in time because of the spiritual development that I had. So I started, I just asked the Lord, I said, Lord, what is that? I know Brother Hagin has the interpretation for the things that he speaks, so he must not have it in his heart that he's supposed to interpret. So what is that? What is that about? And as soon as I asked the Lord, I had the gist. I had a summary of what it was. And then by the, just uh, within a few moments, Brother Osteen stepped up and he said exactly, it wasn't a word-for-word thing because I didn't have it in words, but he said exactly the, what I had the summary of for what Brother Hagin had said in tongues. And that led to Brother Hagin speaking in tongues again and Brother Osteen interpreting again, and it went on like that for three or four times. So interpretation of tongues can, can operate in a, in a variety of ways. It can operate in a, different, uh, in a different setting. The Bible talks about diversities of operations. That means every gift of the Spirit, every manifestation of the Spirit can operate in different ways one time that they, than from the next time or from the last time. But it's always a faith operation. And the reason for that is because God only divides the manifestation of the Spirit to, to us. He doesn't give us a gift. See, if I had the uh, gift of healing, I could make it work anytime I wanted to. If I had the gift of prophecy, then I could prophesy anytime I wanted to. And this is where a lot of people make mistakes because they think they have a certain gift because God uses them that way. Maybe you'll use them that way one time. And they'll say, okay, that's it. I've, I've now got the gift of prophecy. Well, no, you don't. Nobody does. You may have been divided the manifestation of prophecy. But that's different from the gift. A gift is something under my control. See, I've got a teaching gift, so I can teach whenever I want to. 
It's under my control. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. But I can teach when I want to because it's a gift that I've been given according to the work that God's called me to do. But nobody has gifts of the Spirit in that manner or in that way. It's always a faith proposition. Somebody will feel the prompting of the Holy Ghost to step out into something. And from there, it's the leading of the Holy Ghost. Faith is not, faith doesn't always know every step of the way. Faith just knows the one that is following. Amen. Now, let me ask you another question. Well, I've got one more. Let me deal with this one. Okay, let me deal with this one real quickly. Are the saints who have passed on uh, aware or conscious of this time? Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 12. We don't have a whole lot of information about this. But we do have, we have a couple of things that are that are hints. Hebrews chapter twelve. The eleventh chapter is the Hall of Fame of Heroes of Faith. And then chapter twelve starts off, verse one, wherefore, meaning it's tied into the heroes of faith and the great exploits of those that have gone on before us. Wherefore Seeing we also are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now this first part of the verse, seeing we are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, other translations translate that in a little different way. One translation says, seeing that we encircled are encircled with such a great number in the grandstands. In other words, it's talking about people in heaven that are cheering us on. The picture is to be cheered on, seeing we are encompassed about or encircled with such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us run the race. Well, why would it say we're encircled with a great cloud of witnesses if our running the race didn't have something to do with them? Why wouldn't it say, since we have such great examples, what makes them witnesses? Witnesses to what? Now, I'm going to have to give you an experience, and it's not my experience, I'm going to have to give you an experience and tell you that it's up to you to judge whether or not you believe this is true. Brother Hagin said that uh, when his sister died, he was, um, uh, the funeral had just taken place and, and uh, you know how things happen when loved ones go home to be with the Lord. Everybody's spent and drained emotionally and so forth. So he's waiting for his wife to finish up in the, in the bathroom and come to bed. And he's kind of just laying in bed and kind of with his hands behind his head propped up on the pillows a little bit. And he said, all of a sudden, he was standing in heaven. And Jesus was there. And he could see Jesus was standing facing him. And as he walked up, Jesus was talking to somebody. And he couldn't tell who it was. And as the person that Jesus was talking to saw that Jesus was looking over her shoulder at where Brother Hagin was walking up uh, to, to join them, she turned around and he saw that it was his sister. And she said this. She says, the first thing she said was, oh, Kenneth, don't feel so bad that you couldn't pray the prayer of faith for me. Well, he said that that was one of the things that he had asked the Lord about. He was really thinking about it at the time that he was caught up in, in the vision into heaven. Why couldn't I pray the prayer of faith for her? In every other family member's life, he was able to at least pray the prayer of faith for him once. In many cases, pray him out of death. In other cases, pray him out, out of sicknesses or, you know, difficult situations, whatever it might be. But he wasn't able to with his sister. So he said, Lord, why wasn't I able to pray my sister out of this out of this sickness. And then he was caught up into heaven. That was the first thing she said. She said, oh, Kenneth, don't feel so bad that you couldn't pray the prayer of faith for me. There are reasons for it that are between me and the Lord. 
And so then she said, now, I want you to do some things for me. She said, I want you to tell so-and-so. She started naming some people down uh, that were left behind, people that she had left behind in her family. She had a couple of kids and, uh, that were young teenagers, if I remember correctly, left her husband behind. And so she said, I want you to tell Bill and the kids, I want you to do this. And he, she, he, she gave him specific information about what to tell them. And she said, now tell Bill this. He'll know that you've seen me when you tell him this. And then she said, uh, started talking about some things. She said, now I've already seen Granny. I've already seen some other people in the family. And she mentioned one person that, uh, uh, that was a, uh, a part of the family, a cousin. She said, and I saw so-and-so. She said, I didn't tell them that their wife had remarried. She said, see, people up here don't care about things like that. She said, people up here are concerned only with the spiritual welfare of those that are left behind. But they don't care about the car you drive or the clothes you wear. They don't care about natural things. So I didn't say anything to them about so-and-so having remarried and, uh, and, and so forth. So Brother Hagin said that this vision continued for another whatever, seemed like 10 to 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden he was back in his bedroom. Well, he said that got him to thinking about some things. He said he never had looked at Hebrews 12, 1 in, uh, in this fashion before. But he said what she said to him really got his attention. Now, you can choose to believe this or not. I can't give you chapter and verse for why it has to be this way. And I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't recommend and wouldn't try to influence you to believe mine or anybody else's experience if it's not an experience in line with the word. But as near as I can tell, the experience doesn't contradict any scripture. I have a personal or had a personal relationship with Brother Hagin, so I believe him to be an honest man. But maybe you don't have that, and so you don't have the same, um, you don't have the same impetus to put faith in what he said because it's coming through me third hand rather than having heard it from him or, or from somebody that you knew personally. But does it contradict any scripture? Is there any scripture that tells us otherwise? Well, we do have a scripture that says that the angels in heaven rejoice when a sinner is born again. Well, how would people know in heaven if they're not watching from the grandstands, so to speak, as Hebrews 12, 1 is talking about? How would they know? There must be some kind of information that would communicate. And even if they don't see a sinner get saved, don't you think they'd hear the angels rejoicing? They'd have to be aware of something. So, as a general rule, we can perhaps imagine or surmise just in a general context that those that have gone on before us are aware of spiritual strides that we make, that they would be aware of of steps that we take forward in spiritual growth or spiritual development. But they're not going to be aware of you moving into a new house or getting a new car or buying a new set of clothes or something like that. Only spiritual things. Now, can we prove that with a certainty? No, not from any scripture that I know of. But I don't know of any scripture that that violates. I don't know of any scripture that that would uh, 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 negate or work contrary to. So I choose to believe the experience. You have to decide for yourself. Now, let me ask you one last thing. Let me close with this. Turn with me over to to, uh, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We'll start in verse 1 and read down through verse 3. Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Brethren means he's talking to people that are saved. 
I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That goes back to taking care of yourself. Along with other principles. That it would include. I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God. Which is your reasonable service. Other translations. Most other translations. Instead of saying reasonable service. Translates this as spiritual worship. Remember in John chapter 4 verse 20. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 24, where he's talking to the woman at the well of Samaria. He said, God is the spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Well, we charismatics are real big about worshiping in spirit, meaning in other tongues, singing in other tongues and think that means worshiping in spirit. Well, it might or might not be. But what the Bible talks about worshiping God, spiritual worship is the way you conduct your flesh, what you do and how you discipline your flesh here on the earth. Now, I know most charismatics would rather sing in tongues than discipline their flesh. And as a result, we have a, we meaning the charismatic part of the portion of the church, doesn't have such a great reputation overall. Because they talk about being filled with the Holy Ghost and then they live lives like they're not saved. But spiritual worship, as far as the Bible defines it, here in Romans 12, 1, is to discipline your body. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or spiritual worship. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice what transforms a saved individual. Notice the transformation he's talking about is not a spiritual birth or the rebirth, being born again. The transformation he's talking about is one that comes from gaining the knowledge of the word and changing your thinking. That's what he talks about, the transformation. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. That means to determine by experience what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The only way you're going to ever know the perfect will of God in your life is to think in line with his word. Most Christians weave in and out of the will of God in different aspects and different measures throughout their Christian lives. The only way you're going to be able to walk in the perfect will of God is by renewing your mind to what the word of God says. Changing your thinking to think God's thoughts. For I say, verse 3, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think more highly than he ought to think. Now, of himself is in italics, which means the translators added it, and certainly that would apply as well. God doesn't want us to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but God doesn't want us to think more highly than we ought to think about anything. Not just ourselves. It doesn't say don't think highly. It says don't think more highly than you ought to. Not to think more highly than you ought to think. But to think soberly. The word sober. The, the root word of the word sober. Means not moved by emotion. Think soberly. Don't be influenced in your thinking by the way you feel or what you see. Your five physical senses. Think soberly. How are we going to think soberly? How are we going to not be moved by our emotions? To think according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Notice it does not say God deals a measure of faith. It says God deals to every man the measure of faith. Now Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith and not not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Well, what's the gift of God? Well, both salvation is the gift of God, but faith to be saved is the gift of God as well. So you got two scriptures in the New Testament, both of them written by the Apostle Paul as he was inspired by the Holy Ghost, telling us that faith is dealt and given by God. Faith is dealt and given by God. 
How is it dealt and how is it given? Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith cometh by hearing. We could interpose or substitute either one of these other two words. So then faith is given by hearing and hearing by the word. So faith is dealt by hearing and hearing by the word. God gives faith by the hearing of the word. God deals faith, the measure of faith, by the hearing of the word. Now, here's the real question I've got for you, and that is, what kind of faith would God give? Well, the principle of the Bible is such as I have give I thee. Remember in Acts chapter 3, at the beautiful gate of the temple, the crippled man was there. Peter and John saw him there, and they were looking, uh, he was looking, the crippled man was looking to Peter and John for some money. And Peter and John said, or Peter said, John looked on with him. He said, look on us, such as I have, give I thee. In other words, you can't give anybody something you don't have. So what would God have to give? When it comes to the measure of faith, when it comes to God giving or dealing faith, when it comes to faith that comes by the hearing of the word, what kind of faith is that? Well, if it comes from God, it's got to be the God kind of faith. And that's what Jesus was talking about in Mark chapter 11. Have the God kind of faith. Now, the, the choice is yours as a believer, whether or not you're going to use that God kind of faith. But every one of us have the measure of the God kind of faith. Let's say it this way. We have the measure of the mountain moving kind of faith. We have the measure of the faith that created the world's. We've got the measure of the same kind of faith that God has now and operates with now. We have the measure. It has been given to every believer the measure of the kind of faith that will change anything and everything in your life. Anything and everything in your life can be changed by the measure of faith. Anything and everything in life can be changed by the measure of faith that you already have. Now, what you do with it is up to you. We know faith can grow. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and he commended them. He said, your faith grows exceedingly. We know faith is measurable. Paul said to the centurion, I've not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. He said to Peter after he started sinking, when he walked on the water for a little bit and started sinking, he said to Peter, oh, thou of little faith, why did you doubt? Well, what kind of faith does God give? Does God give weak faith? Does God give little faith? Does God give faith that wavers? No, God gives the God kind of faith. And that's what Jesus explained in Mark chapter 11. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart, independent of his five physical senses, believe according to that which was spoken, that what he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. That's having the God kind of faith. That's making the choice to operate according to the measure of faith that you have. It's making the choice to speak only according to what God's word says. Why? Because it comes back down to the bottom line of faith. The one thing God's after more than anything else, the one thing the devil wants to keep you from more than anything else, is the absolute certainty that it's impossible for God to break his word. And you can't get stronger faith than that. Because then, no matter what happens, no matter how long it happens for, you know that you know that you know that you know God's word is true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Father, 
that we have the opportunity to operate in wisdom, which is to operate according to what your word says. Thank you, Lord, that your word is absolutely true and heaven and hell shall pass away before one small part of your word ever fails to come to pass. Thank you, Lord, that your word promises healing, so healing is ours. Thank you, Lord, that your word promises provision, so provision is ours. Thank you, Father, that your word says that if we abide in you and you abide in us through your word, we can call for whatever we desire and it'll be done for us. Whatever we say, Father, comes to pass because we speak from our heart based upon your word. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to walk by faith, to prove out in our own lives and in our own circumstances the absolute truth that you cannot break your word. Thank you, Lord, that you want your word to come to pass for us, and that's why you gave it to us. We declare that the word is working in us in a mighty, mighty way. Whether it's seen or not seen, it's true. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.